and welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of July 3rd. On this week's show, Hark, a children's book. Kate Beaton, the creator of the New York Times bestselling cartoon Hark a Vagrant, has released a book for kids, The Princess and the Pony. She joins us to talk about how writing one is actually trickier than you think, and what the value of a fart joke is. Then, Selling Soul. With his debut album Coming Home, Leon Bridges is the latest soul artist tapping heavily into the past. But what are we talking about when we talk about soul in 2015? Michael Barclay joins us to talk about that modern soul sound. And True Patriot Love. It's the week of Canada Day, so we'll stand on guard about our favorite CanCon in pop culture. Spoiler alert, I'll probably say something about Drake. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. This is The Thrill. There's a world where beat poets and Goethe like have to suffer for hipsters ruining all their art. There's a world where Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson is advised by Mackenzie King's Dead Dogs, and where Ada Lovelace wedges someone for doubting her knowledge of analytical engines. That world is in Hark a Vagrant, a hilarious webcomic mostly about history by Canadian artist Kate Beaton. Her collection was on the New York Times bestseller list for five months, and she's done that rarest thing, made Canadian history eminently cool. Now she's taken that irreverent attitude to the world of children's books. The Princess and the Pony came out earlier this week, and Kate joins us in studio. Thanks for coming in. Hey. So Mount Allison uh, is where you went to school. And that's yes. where you started cartooning, right? So what what was it that drew you to cartooning as your medium of choice? Um, well, when I was in, in school, um, the the comic section in the newspaper looked really fun because it was a I think it was one of the only independent student newspapers in the country. So it was kind of like a like a wild west over there, and uh, and you could just submit anything. And um, uh, I I was interested in fine arts, but I wasn't in fine arts, so that that seemed like a like a natural place to go. And um, eventually, um, I think I started putting more work into the the humor writing and, and comic section there, and I became editor of that section. Then uh, I probably neglected my studies a little <laughs> bit, uh, but it was just it was it was so rewarding. I, I I really liked being that that kind of like entertainer, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, I just kept it going after after university, and uh, and it kind of it spread organically. Um, and when I had an audience that was big enough, I thought I should just give this a shot, mm-hmm. and it's worked out. Yeah. Well, student journalism is like this amazing place, right? Where it's just people are going to read your stuff, and yeah, it's kind of this yeah. like thrilling world. Hall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so now you're doing now you've done a children's book, uh, which you know feels like a bit like a natural move, but maybe not. Uh, what were your favorite children's book as a kid? What's your favorite book? Oh, I remember my favorite one was was uh, if you give a mouse a cookie. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know if you guys remember that I one. Do not. If you if you give him a mouse a cookie, then he's gonna want a glass of milk if you give him a glass of milk he's gonna want to like take a nap and then if you let him take a nap then he's just like it turns into this like insane um uh like hyperbolic uh, uh list of things you have to do for this mouse and he completely takes over your life <laughs> so you should never give anything <laughs> to a mouse the moral no. was don't give things to mice yeah 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 but i think it was also like it teaches kids a bit about responsibility and parenting or something as well i read a review <laughs> of it once and they were like this is what it's really about but i just thought it was it's weird that know. there is a children's book about parenting. Oh, there's lots. There's lots of like secret messages in, in kids' books. It's like the fish is like your mom. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I don't have any of that here. Um, so why princess? Oh, um, because I loved princesses when I was little. I really did. I drew the cone hats and stuff, and we had drawings. I found a drawing of I made of myself as a princess, and I had rainbows all over my dresses. And or my dress, and um, I also had a beard. <laughs> I think I made a mistake, and I tried to fix it, and it just turned into a beard on my face. But um, I just I love them, and and I think that there's a lot of princess 
stuff out and there's kind of a lot of pushback as well yeah but, um but i i remember at the time um as a kid I, I i remember choosing it like i like princesses not i'm being sold princesses and i'm gonna consume it but but like this is something that i like and i think that little kids are are uh, um attracted to them because they're these young people these young girls i guess who have the power to make choices and uh, and to like do what they want in a way that other characters don't have. So you you of course you would you would be like yes I like princesses, um, but I debated it at first and then I was like well if I was a kid this is the book that I would want to read. So yeah, and on this princess tip, Princess mm-hmm. Pinecone being the yeah uh, the lead character of this new book, I so we've kind of seen that that's that story before. This kind of princess is like you know she's training to be a warrior. Yeah, right. So she's she's um, very tough and capable. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we kind of, like I'm trying to I'm thinking of like Arya Stark in um, Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones and she's kind of like that too that the way that they show princesses being like just like can do whatever a boy can do mm-hmm. but um, this princess Princess Pinecone is not really on the surface particularly feminine um, but she saves the day with with cuddles and yeah. like kindness well I think she's kind of feminine like I gave her ribbons on her on her shoes and and uh, a little dress and that kind of thing I I I don't think that you have to get rid of the feminine elements to be cool and tough right um and that was that was part of her design for sure that you can have you can kind of have it both ways mm-hmm. you can have the ribbons and also be be a cool warrior um but the question was sorry well I was just gonna say why did you choose that plot like to show that not all heroes have to have swords and you don't oh, have to show yeah. that you can well, do it I guess so, but actually, it started with the pony. We were going to make a story about the pony because he's been a character, or it. I don't. It's not really. Some, <laughs> I don't know what what the pony is, but uh, I've I've had it for a long time as a character, very very popular, and um, and it kind of doesn't do that much whenever it shows up anywhere. So uh, uh, it's 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 sometimes it's hard to construct a story around it. When I was thinking about it, and the best thing I thought to do was have this this pony character who's very sort of passive and everything, and, and just put the most action around it as possible. Mm-hmm. And so this kingdom of warriors made a lot of sense. Um, and the story just kind of came together through all those different elements. Um, and, uh, and I mean, we, we worked it a few times. And uh, um, I think it, in, in the end, it, it, comes out, it comes out well. But uh, I didn't come in with, like, my, my agenda, I guess. Right. <laughs> we just tried to have a, have a bit of fun mm-hmm. with it. That and was the primary thing. This pony, I've heard that it's like it's really popular with your fans, so much so that they ask you to um, design them tattoos. It's been on tattoos, yeah. People ask, and I say that they can if they want to, but I don't design tattoos for people because I, I feel like I don't, I don't know. That's forever. Yes, yeah, forever. <laughs> it's like some drawing of mine, and it's you're a lot like, of pressure. Oh, do yeah. you really like it that much? <laughs> I don't know if I do. <laughs> I hope they do. Well, you know, the the book, you know, it looks simple. And I think all children's book books, by definition, sort of should be simple. And there is a simplicity to yeah, them. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's certainly not simple to create a children's book. What, what sort of challenges did you come up against when you when you started writing? Oh, you know, I'm going to write a children's book. But there's stuff to it, right? What challenges? Yeah. I, uh, uh, it's just a different audience. Um, kids, I'm so, I'm so tuned into this adult audience that, that has a certain sense of humor knowledgeable and full of nostalgia and they, they respond to uh, a different type of tone of humor and uh, kids are, are just as smart but they're just they're totally different they don't have the same background as we do everything mm-hmm. is new to them you, you say something is cute to somebody grown up then they kind of realize it in, in, a, in a context of, of something being small and something that they remember or something like that but um, but with kids they are small 
they live it and it's different because people call them cute and um uh it's just a it's a different kind of like process of, of information and humor as well i mean there's there's like uh there's farts in this there's book. There's farts. Farts in the book. <laughs> farts are always funny. It's true. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but tuning into to what actually makes kids laugh. I don't know. It's it's just everybody thinks that not everybody, but I think that people think that children's books are easy to write. But anybody who's tried knows that it's um it's harder than you think. Yeah. What is that difference? What is the difference between like uh, adult humor and children's humor? Because you kind of have to balance both, right? Because mm-hmm. technically the adult is going to buy this book, is going to probably read the book to yeah, the child, right? Yeah, yeah, So what's that sort of balance like that you have to strike? Also, kids in a way might be a more intimidating audience. Oh, yeah, like yeah. for kids. They're yeah. so brutally honest. Yeah, they'll yeah. just be like, oh, I don't right. like that. Yeah. I love that because <laughs> if you if a kid doesn't like something, they're like, oh, I don't like this. And they just drop it and they do something else. But if, you know, in the adult audience, I, you know, I work in comics, and people are like, I don't like this. And then they'll write a hate scrawl <laughs> somewhere like, about how they don't like it. And kids will just take something or leave it. But if they love it, they really, really love it. So that's really rewarding. Um, but with the difference between the two audiences, I guess, like, adults just, they've been around the block. They've heard the jokes before. It's all new to kids. But that means that their sense of humor is kind of original as well. Like, they don't, um, it's not, uh, it hasn't been, like, um, I don't know, cultured mm-hmm. and and uh, and sort of honed. They're laden with like references. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. You can't reference anything. They're like, why? No, yeah. it's just give me farts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great advice for anybody out there who wants yeah. to write a children's right? book. Right, loaded up. It seems like right now uh, everyone is writing a children's book. It seems to me. Oh like, yeah. There's... Why is that? Why 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 the sudden deluge of people interested? Like Jimmy Fallon just is is oh, going to write one now. Yeah. But I feel like celebrities and things have always sort of gotten into that world um better than a diet book yeah fair enough um, <laughs> um <laughs> i uh i don't know it's uh because i think when when somebody shows an interest like scholastic approached me after my my first comic collection came out and i was like they were like are you interested and i was like of course i am like of course <laughs> who doesn't want to write a kid's book it's it's um if you read a children's book and it and they like it, it's part of their long-term memory, like for life. Like mm-hmm. we all remember our favorites. If it's where the wild things are or whatever. Or the like mouse those, and the milk. Mouse yeah. and the cookie. Yeah, yeah. They're just lodged in there forever. Yeah. And that's 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 a real sort of like point of privilege, I think. Mm-hmm. I can, you can see why people would want to do it. Yeah. We, we talked a bit about messages earlier, and I want to ask why uh, every children's book ultimately has one in, in some sort of yeah. way, either explicitly or implicitly. So why choose this one? I mean, the, the sort of, I mean, tell me a bit about why, uh, what oh. the message is, and then tell me a bit about why you chose this one for, for your children's book. Oh, yeah. Well, th- at first, I really just wanted to make a book that would make kids laugh. Yeah. That was, that was the point. But then in the end, you know, I, I did choose the princess on purpose, and I chose the unconventional storyline and everything. And I think that... Um, um, the the message in there is uh, it's a it's a version of be who you are because who you are is is great. I mean, she's a small she's smaller than everybody else. She's not a grown up yet. She wants to be a tough warrior, but she's just a kid. Um, but there's a lot of value in in what she has to offer. Um, even if she doesn't like um, even if she doesn't come up to snuff with all of us, she's not as big and tough and and adult as as everybody else. But uh, but she's got she's got a lot going for her as well. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot of talk about strong female characters and everything, and and I've I've had my my comments about that in in my comics and things. And um, uh, 
just wanted to to write a story about about a a, a girl. Uh, I'm one of four girls, and um, so that's my my childhood experience. And uh, um, trying really hard and and uh, winning the day, but uh, not necessarily because she's she's better than everybody else, but she's just got something going for her that's that's her own. I guess that's what I was getting at. Like she's not disappointed that the way that she she wins is not the traditional way that it looked like she was yeah, supposed to win. Yeah, yeah, And it's not that anybody makes her feel bad for using her her strengths. Yeah, yeah. In the story in the end I think the story is just about love. Like she gets the she gets the the present from her parents mm-hmm. and it's not exactly what she wants. And I had a a friend tell me the other day that um you know, you know, parents do this all the time. You're a kid and you're like, this is what I really, really want. And they hear it and they're like, oh, and they don't really get it. So so my friend was like, I really wanted this awesome red bike. And my parents got me this pink bike with tassels and a basket. And because <laughs> the parents are like, yes, bike. Yeah. Yes. This <laughs> or, is for you. Uh, and, I asked for a bike and once I got golf lessons, I was 11. Oh, wow. Thanks, Dad. No interest in golf. <laughs> Never showed. Anyway. <laughs> but that, but that sort of thing. But you know, the parents tried their best. They, they were like, "Here, this is what you asked for," and she's like, "Not, not really." But <laughs> thank you. It's and like you the Shandai, you know, the the yeah, yeah the, the sweater, the, the right? Sweater. Exactly. Sweater. Yeah, and you and can't say no. He takes instead. and he goes and he plays with yeah. it because it because his mom Just she wrote to Mr. Heart. Eaton and, yeah. and here yeah. my son. Here's this is for you, and she doesn't understand why he doesn't like it. And uh, and yeah, that's probably the best part of that story as well is that he actually goes and wears the sweater. Yeah. Um, so here, yeah, she she takes the pony and she takes care of it, and she's like, "Well, this is my birthday present." All right. Nice. I don't think I think that's it. Do you I, guys I, wanted... I have one oh, more. Oh, do you have question. one more? Sure. I just wanted to ask you that you've got you've got something uh, new in the works for the fall. Step aside, pops. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. It's just the second comic collection from Drawn and Quarterly. The first one was Harker Vagrant in 2011. So this is all the comics that I've made on my on my website since then. Um, it's like 160 pages or something like mm-hmm. that, and um, uh, it's it's called Step Aside Pops, but it's it's volume two pretty well, um, and uh, and it's good. It's got a lot more feminist work in it, I think, and um, yeah, it looks like there's a Victorian lady. On yeah, a bicycle on, on the on bicycle. The cover. Yeah, she's angry looking, sour. <laughs> I love drawing angry people with cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know why that, that's that's my, my what about best. happy people with cigarettes though that's not, not as good. fun no that's good. no good they gotta be surly <laughs> either angry people with cigarettes or farting horses those yeah. are the, One my the go to <laughs> so yeah I'm hoping uh, I'm wondering if you can read a little bit of your book uh, okay. for us right now alright <laughs> in a kingdom of warriors the smallest warrior was princess pinecone and she was very excited for her birthday most warriors get fantastic birthday presents shields amulets Helmets with horns on them, things to win battles with, things that make them feel like champions. Princess Pinecone got a lot of cozy sweaters. Warriors do not need cozy sweaters. This year it will be different. Pinecone made sure to let everyone know exactly what she wanted. A big horse, a fast horse, a strong horse, a real warrior's horse. And they tried their best. But they didn't get it quite right. I can't write that, said Princess Pinecone. It's too small. It's too round. And I think its eyes are looking in different directions. This was true, but only sometimes. But you can't say no to a birthday present. So she took the little pony to her room, where it ate things it shouldn't have, and farted too much. All right. Well, thanks so much for for joining us, Kate. That was great. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) 
Last week, Texan-born crooner Leon Bridges released Coming Home, an album done in that classic early 60s soul tradition. Here's the title track. Coming home to your tender sweet love and you're my one and only one. Both Bridges' sound and image is a fairly precise throwback. Not just the sound of his voice, but also he uses uh, vintage sound equipment. He dresses in that early 60s vintage kind of style, both on stage and off stage. And he's been heralded by some as the second coming of Sam Cooke. Also out this week is the third album from sultry-voiced Miguel called Wild Heart. His sound and this album are often called soul, mixed with alt R&B. Here's the track Coffee from Wild Heart. Modern soul singers, both with very different sounds. So it got us thinking, what precisely is a modern soul album? Should it sound like the grandfathers and grandmothers of original soul? Or is that an outdated definition of the genre? How do you make a good modern soul album? Well, we do just who to call to get to the bottom of this. With us today, we have McLean's resident music genius, Michael Barkley. Hi, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't we start with Leon Bridges. Michael, what did you think of this album? I think it's a nice record. I'll admit to being a bit baffled as to why why is this record so different than all other neo-soul records. It's um, it's fine. I don't. He's, he's got a great voice. Uh, the songs are okay. It's a good band. I think that Leon Bridges is probably the best neo-soul singer in Texas. (laughs) Is he the best neo-soul singer in North America? I don't think so. If I lived in his hometown, I would go to see him all the time. He's, you know, got a great voice. Um, uh, I'll admit I'm a bit baffled by all the fuss. Yeah, and I get that too. I mean, to me, the album was good. Sam Cooke is is one of my favorite artists. Um, but I think back to like, you know, the sort of mid to late 2000s when, when that soul revival thing was, was really, was really popular, had Daptone records that put out all of those bands. There was the Sharon Joneses and your, uh, your Budos bands. And, and that stuff was very essentially like that, that mid 60s sound or that 60s sound. And so when I heard Leon Bridges, I thought, well, this is, this, this is great. You know, this is the same kind of thing. I'm not clear as to what it is that makes him more popular uh, say than any of those people. I mean, Sharon Jones just put out, I think, her best album. Absolutely. It's her fifth one. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, I don't know what it is that that he's doing. Different. I don't know, Julia. I what do you think? think? Or Emma, sorry, what do you think? I, I think um, he's just extremely safe. You can see his album doing well in a Starbucks, and I don't mean that to disparage him. I I really liked his album, and I think there are at least two great songs on that album. Um, his hit. I guess it's what's it called again coming home, coming home and yeah. better man and I like uh, the last song river the other ones I thought were okay um but I think he's just he, there's something very kind of I don't want to say generic cuz I like him but he does he reminds you of Sam Cooke and Sam Cooke is interesting cuz when Sam Cooke came out he was new and revolutionary and I guess Leon Bridges is just sort of seems like a 
carbon copy of that. I think that's exactly and, it. I think he does a really great impression of the musicians of old, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, that, those kind of like old school soul singers. Um, I saw him perform when he came to Toronto in a tiny room with all of these old amps and uh, and his, his beautiful vintage clothing. And so the band was dressed the same way and everybody felt like they were like magically time traveled. But it was, it, it hits on that nostalgia tap, you know, like it's it's something that is a facsimile of something that used to exist. And it kind of like a Disney ride. Yeah. What's so interesting about it, too, is that uh, I read today that he didn't even really listen to Sam Cooke yeah. or really any uh, 60s soul until very recently, I think a few years ago. And, you know, I think his favorite artists are like Drake and Kendrick Lamar. So I think this is like a fairly recent thing for him. And he, he didn't always dress like that. I think it was a friend of his mom's who suggested that he try to start looking the part. So. Um, I, I don't think he should... Uh, be scared of the word generic. I think it is generic. I think it sounds like a lot of other things and that's fine. What I find interesting in this genre or any throwback genre, whether it's uh, rockabilly, which was suddenly very popular again, late seventies, early eighties, was like, remember that thing from 20 years ago and rock sounds like this now. And remember when it sounded like this, it happens in hip hop, like Jurassic five, when they came out in the two thousands, Hey, it sounds like the early eighties and five rappers again. Now we have like nineties grunge revival band. All these things obviously come in circles and they, and they tap into inherent conservatism among music listeners, most of whom listen to the same music they listen to when they were teenagers. So, you know, suddenly when you're 30, 40, and then you want to hear something that sounded like something from a long time ago. Um, but in terms of him not being influenced by all those people, I think of another record that came out this year that I loved, which is by Shamir. And this is a 20-year-old guy from Las Vegas. It's very electro. It's uh, It sounds very similar to like early 90s house music in a way. Um, and here's a guy who grew up listening to totally mainstream country music and then formed like this kind of uh, bedroom punk band with this friend of his. He just, he borrowed this machine from his godfather, this drum machine from the 90s. So he said, of course my music ended up sounding like this because I was using the same equipment. He sends some demos away. This guy says, oh my God, you sound like all these other things. He's like, really? I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. He plays him all these old records. He goes, yeah, you're right. But what makes Shamir different than anyone else trying to replicate early 90s things is the voice and the personality. And it, the only thing that will make you stand out if you're doing any kind of retro art form is personality and songs or uh, if you just have like such an incredible, phenomenal blow-away voice, which is why people like Amy Winehouse or Adele kind of rise to the top because they just have these undeniable voices, even if the songs aren't that great or if some part of the equation is not as good. You know, like all these things balance, but I do think you need something to totally stand out, which is why Leon Bridges kind of baffles me because mm -hmm. when I hear him, nothing particularly stands out to me. Yeah, I think that was that's an excellent point about the personality part because when you do do an exact impression of somebody else but you remove the, the element of your own voice... You know, after we saw the show, we were talking about uh, the person I went to go see it with. We were talking about how, oh, yeah, people are saying that he's like Sam Cooke. And we kind of debated, but he's not really Sam Cooke. And I and he doesn't really, he's certainly not as good as Sam Cooke. And it's not fair to really compare him. And one of the things that all of those original soul singers have in common is that they all came out of the church. And there's like this gospel sound that you can't really recreate. So whatever that magic thing is, um, if you're only doing an impression of something you and you don't, and you don't have that, it's, mm -hmm. it becomes evident. Oh, and Miguel, for example, does have that, I think, because he does yeah. sound like uh, the layers of music that came before him, James Brown with funk and Prince and Jimi Hendrix and all kinds of things, and then he adds his own thing. And Leon seems to, like, strip it all back, mm -hmm. you know, take all the layers away and try to 
I wonder if Leon Bridges is kind of selling an experience also, though, because yeah, I the nostalgia that, definitely that people. I, I know you were at the show; mm-hmm. I wasn't there, but I heard that there were people um, dancing really, you know, like as as old couples dance at weddings. Yep. and that doesn't happen. Yeah, very it was often. like a Disney ride in that way. The right, for hotel the... with other. <laughs> well, again, going back to the '90s, there was a big swing revival then, bands like the Squirrel Nut Zippers and all this stuff, and. And to me, it's like whenever whenever this uh, a freak hit happens with a genre of music, whether it's ska or whatever it is, and then usually the best band has risen to the top, and they're very good at what they do, and then you get all these imitations. And then it's mm. like, well, those are just okay. I put on Scroll on Zippers record the other day. I just found it randomly. I was like, this is still a great record. And then it made me forget about all the other crappy bands <laughs> that rose <laughs> in the Swing Revival Wake. But the same thing, you at those shows, people would, all the... Ball, closet ballroom dancers would come out and like start swinging around and we're right. like, oh my god, this great experience. Well, I think the question we're saying is like, is is pastiche is pastiche bad? Right, the idea that we're selling something as uh, a costume almost is that necessarily authentic? Is that necessarily good? Uh, I I think Leon Bridges verges toward it, especially because we like I was saying before, we had all these people who sort of did it, especially the white boy soul when we were talking about like Mark Ronson's early stuff or Mayor Hawthorne before he turned into whatever Mayor Hawthorne is now, <laughs> and like early Jamie Liddell and. Mm-hmm. Eli Paperboy Reed, and it was all this stuff that was like, oh, we're gonna get dressed up, and you're gonna dance like this, and, and this is what se- yeah, well, it's very much, up, yeah. And so, and so that like, you know, is that pastiche bad or good? Yeah. I think it's remember the Brian Seltzer Orchestra and Swing was in. Everybody like dressed at the Cherry Pop and Daddies. Oh, the most offensive band name in the world. A whole other <laughs> <Sorry>. conversation. <laughs> but I wanna, uh, I wanna think about, uh, you know, I was listening to the Miguel album, I was listening to uh, the Leon Bridges album, and I was thinking about. Uh, how far I guess the what we what we think about when we talk about soul music uh, has come. You know, it used to be. It certainly was rooted in that gospel thing. The thing that Sam Cooke did was decide, forget about the stigma of uh, secular music. I'm going to do secular music, which is popular, but, you know, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be making these, you know, hymns anymore. Um, and and there there was a danger to that, like, you know, certainly to his career. But I think now there's something, uh, and I want to pose this to you guys, uh, earnestness seems to me uh, the thing that is the bravest part of soul music. The fact that you're, like, putting so much of your feelings on the line in a way that I think is, is hard to really uh, recreate in other genres of music. And I think that we live right now in a, a particularly ironic time where emotions are hard to surface uh, it's in, in such an earnest way. Like, it's it's hard to be as sticky sweet in other genres of music than it is, I think, in soul music. I think that's the thing that Leon Bridges does. And also Miguel. You listen to Miguel, his lyrics are not particularly, you know, wise or smooth. And they're, they're, they're kind of, like, crackling with that kind of awkwardness, but the awkwardness of, like, very raw love. It's like, I have these feelings I just want to say, you know? Um, I think there's a bravery to that, too. I don't know what I you guys think I don't think it's that. any different in any other genre. I think you, just, you could say the same thing about country. You could say, say mm-hmm. the same thing about pop. You could say the same thing about so-called indie rock in terms of what is earnest and vulnerable to me the only thing earnest and vulnerable is something like cat power or someone's almost breaking down on stage Mm -hmm. and it's like there's clearly no artifice there with this person in a precarious situation on stage most performance is artifice most performance is putting on a costume and dressing up and pretending you're really feeling it for the crowd tonight i also am not sure that soul is earnest or maybe it is earnest but i think it's it is generic like the lyrics aren't raw to me they're just sort of Right, but they have that the sort of like some some soul music, especially right now. I think has have that kind of saccharine, not quite hallmark quality, but the the kind mm-hmm. of things that if you said that in real life, you'd be like, oh, that's a weird thing. That, like that's like an awkward emo? thing. Uh, maybe, but <laughs> not quite. Know, you know what I mean? Here. It's like I'm coming home to my baby. 
I well, love her. not specifically perhaps that song, but I'm you know, there's, uh, yeah. I don't know. I just think that there is a there is a saccharine quality that you can't. I think quite what's do interesting in is that when Sam Cooke moved from gospel to secular music, that was seen as very controversial. Right. Very. And Leon Bridges is like anything but controversial. Yeah. I wish Same. he. I heard more of his love of genuine and Usher in his <laughs> his album, which he said were his always his influences, yeah. the things that he listened to growing up. I don't know. I think "Coming Home" is a great song. I really like it. It's very catchy. I think it's a memorable but song. It's generic, which not is not necessarily a bad word, <laughs> but it is that. Yeah, and I mean, Miguel to me is fascinating because, uh, to me, he does kind of exist out of a lot of genres. I think the only, the only reasons anyone anyone is calling it solar R and B is is because he's black mm-hmm. or perceived to be mm-hmm. black, half Hispanic, half black. It's. Uh, uh, I mean, race is so tied up in what we call soul music, and then there's all these kind of qualifiers when a when a white person does it, and, and like blue eyed soul. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, hollow notes, and <clears throat> um, so I think that what he's doing is very much uh, to me. It reminds me of I would say specifically mid '80s Prince, because I mean Prince is a lot of things to mm-hmm. a lot of people and a lot of things to himself, but um, <laughs> uh, in the '80s he really kind of existed outside of. Uh, uh, the disco R&B in which he started. He clearly existed outside of rock. He was mixing so many crazy things with these psychedelic overtones, and it, it sounded very modern and very inventive. And to me, that's what I hear um, in the production on Miguel's record. I mean, the the, the way guitars are used, the, the keyboards, it's all very trippy. Um, uh, it's got like shades of Frank Ocean, but better and more interesting to me. Um, it's... Uh, it's a really intriguing mix. I'm not sold on the record yet. I really loved um, the previous one, Kaleidoscope Dream. Mm-hmm. This one is taking me a bit of time to wrap my head around. It's not like, oh my God, it's brilliant. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I'd like it yet, but it's uh, it's definitely worth hearing and, and examining. Thanks for coming, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Canada just turned 148 years old. Although if you ask me, it doesn't look a day over 140. And it got us thinking. Even though we live in a country that sits right on top of the world's biggest cultural influencer, we've been influenced by so much Canadiana here on the show. We've talked about some of it over the course of our run, from CRTC rulings and CBC TV shows, to Sharon, Lois, and Bram, to the Canadian commercial, Don't You Put It In Your Mouth. And so, with glowing hearts, we thought about it ourselves. What are our favorite things in Canadian pop culture? Julia, want to start? So, do I ever have a soft spot for the heritage minutes? You may remember them uh, in the 80s and the 90s, one-minute video commercials, I suppose, just to give you a little uh, reenactment of some Canadian history. Growing up uh, in in school, I was like utterly put to sleep by Canadian history, especially in relation to American history. Learning about Champlain and John Cabot and stuff, just it felt like an embarrassing snooze fest in comparison to Abraham Lincoln and Prohibition, for example. Um, But the best Heritage Minutes gave me a real appreciation, um, not just because they're educational, but because they're entertaining too. And now they're so woven into our Canadian fabric that they're kind of like the Canadian pop culture um, pop references, like The Simpsons. You know, if you tell somebody, I smell burnt toast, like everybody's like, everybody knows what that is. We're all having seizures. Which is right. For those of you who don't know what that means. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. No, it's a woman um, in one of these Canadian heritage min- minutes. A woman would smell burnt toast before she would have an epileptic seizure. And Dr. Wilder Penfield then 
locates through brain, brain surgery exactly where and how certain sensory auras um, may preclude a seizure, which was a major step in understanding epilepsy, the more you know. And so, uh, <laughs> or like, but I need those baskets back about uh, like the peach baskets and you, I just and can't, I refuse to believe that that's like a Canadian moment. It's like, oh, and then believe it, Adrian. the basket. Listen, Canada. Basketball we had to start it. somewhere. Or when Joe Schuster first shows one of his uh, – one of the first sketches of Superman to this lady friend who says, like, a hero in tights, that'll never fly, Joe. And he's like, fly, no, but it'll leap over tall – like, I'm just getting so excited. Leap over tall buildings. (laughs) Anyway, I didn't realize how much of of it was uh, a part of my Canadian identity until I lived in in England for a little while. And I was at brunch with some friends. And, of course – we all c- could start to smell some burnt toast coming from the kitchen. And I was like, I guess we're all having seizures, right, guys? Am I right? And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, that would sound very weird if you don't know what I mean. But um, it's just uh, it's part of my Canada. Oh. <laughs> I love the heritage moment when it's the female doctor and she's the only yes. doctor in her, I forget her name, in her class. It didn't work, did it? Not but good she rips work. the remember every single little piece sakes. of paper off the male genitalia. Yeah, and was just like, and I can, like, I can it take too. it. I'm, I can. Yeah. Of course. She throws it in his face. That's a good one. Great one. Anyway, I would say my favorite uh, Canadian pop culture moments I was really into Degrassi, not the next generation, but the first generation. Bravo. Um, <laughs> I was. I'm young enough to have appreciated the most recent generation starring Drake, but I've I have older siblings who are much older than me, and so I would I would watch the first generation with them every day after school. Um, and what I love so much about Degrassi is that everyone's pretty ugly, <laughs> and I think it you know they they really cover all like. the the bases of ugliness that that exist at that time in your life. And that's very unusual when you turn on the TV or American television um, and, you know, Say by the Bell was on, I think, around the same time. Everyone is really hot on that show, Zach Morris. and I think they're only ugly compared to the American shows, though. Classic. I mean, no, there I, are beautiful I like people on degrees. I would argue that they, were, that they were ugly compared to the kids in my class. So well, it made you, you feel school? really yeah. good about yourself. <laughs> you and someone better looking than Caitlin at your school? Yeah, right? We could be here all day. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Joey Jeremiah also. Yep. Um, what a head of hair. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think that that is sort of central to the Canadian spirit, like earnestness, oh, maybe okay. a little bit of ugliness. Um, acceptance. And acceptance, exactly. For who you are. Yeah. Good spin. Uh, <laughs> I, another thing that is very close to my heart is Jeopardy!, uh, Alex Trebek in particular, who is from Sudbury. Uh, my family would always watch that every night during the week when I was a kid. And I thought Alex Trebek was the smartest man in the world. And my dad would remind me every day that he was Canadian. So I thought it was really cool that he's like this smug Canadian telling off dumb Americans who couldn't get things right. Uh, and also Speaker's Corner um, at the Much Music Building I would always go to Speaker's Corner. Um, my friends and I would go downtown and try to get on the air, and we would never succeed. Mm. Uh, but I remember there was one, there were these two guys, they were called like Devil's Advocates. Oh, or I something. remember them. And 
my dad and older brother loved them and I didn't understand any of their humor, but I would just like pretend to laugh. And so that's another fond memory I have. Take, and of course, Electric Circus right. was my favorite. But take band. that speaker's corner because now you're a columnist. So that's get true. out of there. I have my own personal. You literal speaker's corner. Speaker's and people read your column and say, I don't know what she exactly. <laughs> yeah. You made it, Emma. Yeah. Michael, what you got? Um, I grew up in the 70s, which is a great time to be a Canadian child. Uh, Dennis Lee, Alligator Pie, Garbage Delight, Ice Cream Store. Um, Raffi's first record, first two records, uh, amazing, produced by Daniel Lenoir and Hamilton. Lots of great Canadian folk icons on them. Uh, earlier this year, I wrote about Sharon Lewis and Bram from McLean's about why I think their first record totally holds up even as an adult. Uh, amazing musicians, amazing uh, stories, uh, groundbreaking children's record. Bram came and played at my high or my high school, <laughs> no, my elementary school. Uh, I was in grade one at uh, St. Barbara's in Scarborough, Ontario. And he came and he played solo, and I remember Candyman, Salty Dog, and the whole thing. And I realize now that I have Bram to blame for my lifelong addiction to new music and discovering new things because this was before the album came out. So when that album came out and became the biggest thing, I was like, I saw him when <laughs> I was on to him. You're a Bram hipster. You were a Bram I was hipster. Told, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> Bram, damn you, Bram. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, Degrassi as well. I, I'm old enough to have watched it when it was on television the first time. And, um, I loved seeing, uh, what to me seemed much more real than any American television. And the fact that I lived in Toronto and reflected Toronto as well. Um, <clears throat> and multiculturally too, I feel like it was so, um, like everything else was very white. My high, my school was not very white and Degrassi looked like that. And that was great. Um, other CBC, CBC shows like Seeing Things as well reflected this weird side of uh, Toronto. And um, oddly enough for a boy, I was really into Anna Green Gables with Megan Follows, my childhood crush. Perfect. And it doesn't really get any more Canadian than that. True. Um, I did not grow up in the 70s uh, in Canada, and neither did my parents. But oddly, my, my childhood actually uh, resonates that's very similar. I, like, I listened to a lot of Sharon Lowe's and Bram. Uh, I uh, read a lot of Dennis Lee, and uh, Dennis Lee makes up a big chunk of my childhood, not just because Alligator Pie was like my favorite poem growing up, but because my father's name is Dennis Lee. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, would later in university write this uh, satire about uh, just my life as Dennis Lee as my father. And uh, a lot of my friends actually believed that the that Dennis Lee was my father. Not seeing the very clear satire of the piece, like I, I claimed claimed that uh, the the poem William Lyon Mackenzie King was about me and then it's just like a passive aggressive thing about like not not cleaning my room uh, so so Dennis Lee uh, was was a important person in both ways to my life and not just because your father walked around reciting in rhyme all the time not not all the time but sometimes um, but uh, the other thing uh, Kenneth Oppel I was I read pretty voraciously as a kid I don't know what happened to me since but uh, you know uh, Dennis Lee and, and Kenneth Oppel who's uh, the Silver Wing series of books about uh, a young bat uh, was was very formative for me um, the thing I think that has influenced me the most uh, as, as to my my sort of uh, outlook on Canadian in pop culture, though, is um, the series of books by Brian Lee O'Malley, uh, the Scott Pilgrim comic series. Uh, I was a very big comic nerd growing up. Uh, I 
played video games as uh, as a young outside averse uh, kid would. Uh, and here came these comics that uh, that so accurately expressed not just you know my cultural experience, but also it was in Toronto. It was set in Toronto, and for the first time I realized, oh wait, you know Toronto is actually a pretty cool place. Canada is a really cool place if this thing is is here and made here. Um, and then the movie came out, and it was filmed in Toronto, and my friends were extras in that movie, and it was filmed you know down the street from my high school. That's the where it is located is where my high school is was um, and and it just sort of disabused that that very classic notion that Canadian pop culture is not doesn't hold a candle to American pop culture because this is there's you know this is an Edgar Wright movie this is you know Michael Sarah was in this film although of course he's Canadian but you know this is this was such a cool movie and I still think of it as like this this essentially cool thing uh, and the last thing I have to talk about is Drake I mean uh, this is a guy who uh, has changed the game in rap music an essentially American thing it's the same kind of thing this this idea that Canadian culture isn't good enough uh, because, you know, it's not American culture and we're right there. And yet we have this guy who has uh, arguably changed the fundamental rules of hip hop. Uh, and I think that we still underrate him. I was talking to uh, Shad for a story that I'm working on, and we talked about we started talking about Drake, and he he talked about how we still underrate Drake, that his cultural impact in Canada specifically, we still don't quite acknowledge how lucky we have it. Whether we have this this guy who in it like is kind of an ambassador, but also a mega mega artistic force uh, in the world globally. So I think uh, those are the things that really uh, I that really form me. As a Canadian. I have to say that as four journalists sitting in a room, uh, one primary thing for Canadian culture for me too was uh, Brian Linehan. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know who that is. He was uh, a journalist on City TV in Toronto and he did entertainment interviews. And this was, you know, in an age way before Wikipedia or anything, this guy actually did know everything. Right. And he would go and interview someone and he, I mean, it was later mocked on SCTV with this classic skit, but he would say, you know, June 23rd, 1968, <laughs> you turned to Elizabeth Taylor and you said, like, and they would, everyone would just flip out. It, I yeah. mean, this is before Nardwar, too. Nardwar, yeah. Totally Another Nardwar. Canadian, yeah. Yeah, I love Nardwar. And Brian Linehan was like the, the straight world version of, uh, of Nardwar. And um, brilliant, brilliant guy. And, uh, and I watched him on City TV and I thought, I want to be that guy. <laughs> and now you are. I'm, I'm still <laughs> aspiring to be Brian Linehan, so. Aren't we all? <laughs> Well, happy Canada Day, belatedly, everyone. Happy Canada 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 Day. Day. We did it. Well, that's it for this week. We're on our summer schedule, so our next episode will come on July 17th. Check it out, as always, at mcleans.ca, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. We'd love it if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes, or if you'd like, you can tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on our site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast, On the Hill, or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. All of those podcasts are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you July 17th. <laughs>